welcome back to another episode of Real Faith and Apologetics, and I am your host, Jess Robinson. I hope you had a wonderful week, and so this week I wanted to start the episode out by discussing a study that was conducted by Dr. George Barna, the Family Research Council, and Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center. And Dr. George Barna, for those who don't know, he does a lot of research on churches, the health of churches, the health of Christians and and young Christians. And so, uh, and a lot of his information is valuable when, uh, for pastors to understand what may be going on for church attendance, what needs to be done for discipleship. And so uh, this um, study that was released earlier this year It was way before this podcast became live, Um, but I was listening to the Maven Parent Podcast, which is another podcast I would recommend listening, and they were talking about the results of this study, and it's very sobering and shocking, and as I was listening, I knew that I needed to share the results as well, because it will lead into the next argument that others make saying that, that the Bible is not inspired. So according to the release, Barna identified seven specific beliefs known as the seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview that significantly increases the likelihood that an individual will develop a biblical worldview. Even though these beliefs do not constitute a complete biblical worldview, they provide a very strong foundation for developing that philosophy of life. And they found that when individuals embraced all seven cornerstones, they have an astounding 83% chance of developing a biblical worldview. If they reject just one cornerstone, they only have a 2% likelihood of developing a biblical worldview. Now, before I go into these seven cornerstones, I wanted to say that being credentialed with the Assemblies of God, you will find each of these seven cornerstones in the 16 fundamentals that the denomination stands on. Now, I'm going to read these seven cornerstones, and as I read them, I'm going to read the percentage of young people, not adults, who affirm that belief. So here are the results. So the first cornerstone is those that they believe that God exists and is the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect creator and ruler of the universe. And that result was 69% affirmed that belief. And so I'm going to pause here. That isn't too bad of a number. It's over 50%. And when you do look at entertainment that is being produced, what kind of stories are we seeing? We are seeing stories of the supernatural, that there's something greater than ourselves out there. I do meet teens who are generally open to the concept of there being a God. But the number here are kids who actually, truly believe in one God, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect creator, and ruler of the universe. The second one is those who believe that as a sinner, the only solution to the consequences of sin is to acknowledge your sins, ask God to forgive you through Jesus Christ, and rely on him to save you from those consequences. 
and the number for that was 36% affirmed that belief. Then the third one is those who believe sin is real and significant, that we are all sinners by choice, which 35% affirmed that belief. So I'm going to pause here and take these two cornerstones in for a moment. I'm just going to warn you, the percentage of affirmations on the rest of the cornerstones is going to drop from there. You know, as a youth pastor, I am seeing the struggles that teens have more and more because they honestly do not understand this concept of sin. I can tell them what is sinful, but they will just give you a blank stare because out in the world, sin is more open and normalized. They can't give you an honest definition of sin. And churches and youth groups are shying more and more away from talking about sin and hell because of fear of offending someone. Now, in order for our younger generation to understand what is wrong with the world, they have to get a good teaching about sin. You know, how it came into the world, what were the results. You know, for the last two weeks, our youth group was on Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and there was a lot of discussion about sin and the results of sin because these kids needed to understand this part in order for us to continue on in the Bible. It's also sad because kids also don't have a concept of repentance and what is the way for our sins to be cleansed. There is this whole live your truth thing going on and the fact that kids are taught to focus on themselves instead of others. Trust me, when you ask them how God feels about certain things, you're just going to get the blank stare because it's like, but what about how I feel is what they're thinking. I also think it's because most just hear about this Jesus who is full of love and yeah, he died on the cross and rose again, but they can't tell you why. It's also hard because kids think all repentance is, is saying, I'm sorry. We have to really drive home that sin has consequences, eternal and physical, and that the only way our sins are forgiven is realizing that Jesus is our Lord and Savior and he is the only source for salvation, and that repentance is more than just saying sorry, it's realizing what wrong you have done against God, against his standards, and it causes you to grieve and turn away from sin so you don't hurt God again. So the next cornerstone is those who believe their most important reason for living is to do what God wants, also known as God's will which only 27% affirmed that belief. So listen to that again. Only 27% believe their most important reason for living is to do what God wants, his will. As I said, the numbers just keep getting worse. More and more kids are becoming preoccupied with other things. Those who do call themselves Christians most likely say that God's will has to align with what they want. I just say this because I was in that camp when I was a really young in the Lord. Trust me, God had to make me dump some idols in my life and go for his calling. 
Does it mean that our kids can't have desires and dreams? No. You just have to teach kids that they need to align those things with God's will and trust in him that if that is his will, he's going to make the way. But what we are seeing mostly here is that kids just don't believe their reason for being here is doing God's will. It just shows that there is a priority issue that starts with at the home and even in the church. So the next cornerstone is those who trust the Bible because they believe it is completely true and personally relevant to their life, which only 25% affirmed that belief. This number is startling, but as we see all these arguments of why the Bible is not inspired and not relevant, I can totally understand why we're seeing this number, especially with younger people. And it's startling because it's not just people who don't attend church, but people, especially younger people who do attend church, that are starting to not believe in the Bible. You get kids whose parents attend church and they have, these kids have not honestly heard the Bible all the way through from the beginning to the end because their parents aren't making that a priority in their home. And the number shows also the reason for the low numbers for these cornerstones and for the last two cornerstones I'm going to be sharing as well. It all starts with having this trust in the Bible that it is inspired it's inerrant, it's God's word for our lives. Which the next cornerstone is those who uphold that the Bible provides a complete and reliable understanding of right and wrong, which only 21% affirmed that belief. And this is young people, remember. So here we go. If they don't believe the Bible is true, they are not going to believe it's going to show right and wrong. Just like the lack of understanding is sin, they don't know right and wrong, especially when the world is saying anything goes and live by your own truth. So the last cornerstone is those who believe success is consistently doing what the Bible teaches and only 17% affirmed that belief. That is a very sad number. It just shows our kids are trying to find success and other things in this world. So these are just the result for younger kids. Now I'm going to share the results for the adults. So only 50% of American adults embrace the true nature of God. Only 35% believe Jesus is the only way for salvation. 27% recognize humans as sinful 46% accept the Bible as true and reliable. A slim 25% believe in absolute truth rooted in the Bible. And 36% see their purpose as serving God. And only 23% define success as obedience to God. So we can just try to blame everything on, on the culture out there, which, I mean, yeah, the culture is shocking. What we're seeing in entertainment is shocking. But the main problem is we're seeing it's actually on the home front. It starts at the home. It starts at the church. I honestly think we need to be using these seven cornerstones as a church, as youth pastors, 
as kids' pastors and even parents on whether our kids are developing a biblical worldview. I will honestly be taking these seven pillars and evaluating our youth by asking these questions and seeing where they are at. So as a youth pastor, I know what we need to be doing to help our students gain a biblical worldview. And I do have to admit, though, this year has been great for our youth group because we did start a curriculum called the Bible Engagement Project. And I will tell you, they were not lying with that title. I have had to break up our lessons in half each week because the curriculum is designed to get students engaged in the Bible and our students have been very engaged. Uh, what it does foster that we've noticed is a place where kids can talk and even ask questions. And I mean, there's been times where I will have a question from the curriculum and one of the kids will actually ask that question. They didn't even see the curriculum. They will ask that question. So just going over the curriculum and even hearing what these kids are asking is helping us to see where our students need more help with understanding of the Bible, understanding of God, of salvation, etc. And also where their strengths are at. And so the curriculum is free. What is also great is the curriculum is actually designed for all ages, even adults. So families can join in on this journey of the Bible together. And as I said, the curriculum is free and you just have to download the app. I'm going to include a link to the website in the episode description. And another good resource, even if you're not part of the Assemblies of God, is that the Assemblies of God does have what is called the seven dimensions of a spirit-filled disciple. And those seven dimensions are the Bible, Holy Spirit, mission, prayer, worship, service, and generosity. And they have this pamphlet that explains those seven dimensions in detail and also lays out based on the different age groups, you know, preschool, you know, K through five, teenagers and adults on what concepts they should understand at that point in their life. So there's going to also be a link for that in the episode description. So seeing these numbers from the study, we can for sure see why this argument against the Bible being inspired that we are coming across today. And to be honest, we are going to be camping around this argument for a while because it's honestly the most common one we are coming across today. And this argument that is made against the Bible is the claim that the Bible approves cruelty and injustice. The argument that is made is that in civilized legal systems, a fundamental principle is that the suffering of the innocent is the essence of injustice. Because of that idea, some accuse that the Bible shows God repeatedly violated this moral precept by harming innocent people. So based on the percentages I read to you in this argument, you can see why this argument is made. Sadly, this is prevalent right now. It's because our culture is living with tension and anger. People are offended easily. You are either oppressed or the oppressor. There's two groups there, oppressed or oppressor. You see it with race, gender, sexuality, 
and so much more. Generally, the oppressed are seen as a minority and those who have injustices. And those who don't want to be seen as the oppressor will become anything in the oppressed category just so they will fit in. And sadly, we are seeing it happen to our kids from a young age. We used to think of peer pressure being just doing drugs and alcohol. It's so much more now. And the attitude is that if something is seen as oppressive, the idea is to cancel it, which is why you see names of schools being changed, school curriculum being changed, and some movies from the past being canceled or having little notes at the beginning of the movie saying, well, we don't condone the actions that happened in this movie. And I think you have some churches where they kind of cover up parts of the Bible that don't look flattering. You know, such as, you know, churches where they're just preaching Jesus as love, you know, and so they kind of like sweep underneath the, the rug all the non-flattering parts. Or you have others that go out, out on those areas because they want to put the fear of God in their congregants. And so you have these two spectrums. But a, a good disciple is going to have a healthy view of God and the judgments that do happen in the Bible because of that healthy view of God and the healthy view of a context of the Bible. And when it comes to the Bible, if you don't have a complete grasp of it being inspired and the whole story from beginning to end, you're going to just open it up and read some accounts and it's going to shock you. I'm not going to cover it up. You know, when I was a brand new believer, there were some things in the Bible where I was really saying, did this really have to happen this way? And when I preached on the parable of the lost son from Luke 15 last Sunday, and I admitted to the fact that it was hard when I was a young believer to read that parable. I felt like it was unfair that the younger son got to have a feast and the older son didn't. But that's because I had grown up with a world-like view that was entirely opposite from a biblical worldview. I had grown up with a mindset that being faithful led to rewards. But what I had to understand was the context of the parable. You know, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees who had only served God for external circumstances and had forgotten that the Messiah was coming to seek and save the lost, which included sinners and tax collectors. So if someone doesn't have a biblical worldview, they are going to look at the Bible and think based on bias that is, you know, it's the scene that the Bible is full of cruelty and injustice because they're used to their worldview. Just as I said before, you know, we are going to be camping around this concept for multiple episodes because this is a huge one to talk about. We will be going through multiple Bible stories that are used to say God is cruel and not just and make our way to some of today's world's issues that Christians are facing. So the biggest argument that is made is that God doomed the whole human race and cursed the entire world because of the acts of two people. The first question I have is what do they mean by that statement? So those who make this statement are generally humanists. Humanism has been around since Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of man and it hasn't died out since then. 
humanists put their importance to the human rather than that of the divine or supernatural powers. Their beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, and they emphasize common human needs and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. So humanists would have a problem with the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. You know, for Gen those that don't know about Genesis chapter 3, it is about Adam and Eve. That they were, Eve was deceived by the serpent who tricked her into eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, and they had been told that they could not eat of that fruit, and Adam ate it. And because of that, God essentially kicked him out of the garden. But there's so much more. Read the whole chapter. What Genesis chapter 3 stresses is how sin entered into the world. And as a result, all humans are born with this thing called sin. It's not just in Genesis chapter 3 that says we are sinful, but the majority of the Bible. For example, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and even the book of Romans says no one is good. It goes against humanist belief about the goodness of human beings. So in their bias, they make it look like it was God's fault because only humans can be good. That idea is once again incorrect, and here is why. God is described in several accounts, such as Isaiah chapter 6 in the Bible as holy. When he created Adam and Eve, they were made in his likeness, and they were without sin. What he did was create free will in Adam and Eve, to give them the decision on whether or not they want to have a relationship with him. It's known as free will. God knows that a forced relationship involves no exchange of love because God is love. Now, before we go into this further, we have to bring in another person in Genesis chapter 3 that humanists like to leave out of this argument, the serpent slash Satan. There are two passages in the Bible that talk about Satan. Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. While they may describe a human in those passages, scholars generally agree that who is actually being described is Satan. Satan fell because of pride, so sin actually begins with pride. And because of his fall, everything that God loves, Satan hates with a passion. And this includes us, and his, his plan is always to steal, kill, and destroy. The thing we have to know is that Adam and Eve were created with all they needed to remain from sin. God had given them one no, which was to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They also had a yes from God. There were many yeses from God, in fact, because they had so many other trees to eat from. They knew right from wrong and possessed adequate reason and understanding. Their sin was not caused by fear or weakness. Theirs was pride, just like Satan. They had been led to doubt God's word, and they had pride knowing that they wanted to be able to eat the fruit to gain wisdom. And because of that, they had to be held accountable for it. Every act in our lives has some consequence, may it be or good or bad. Sin ruins everything, and because of sin, all of natural creation felt the effect of the curse. There was labor, sorrow, sickness, and death that came because of sin. 
And we are still in the likeness of God, but it has been marred because of sin. When humanists try to paint God as the bad guy and that his punishment was set to doom us in the world, it is a flawed thought because they try to base God on the, on the justice we have in the human world, which is not perfect justice. Human justice is flawed because we are flawed. We have to look at justice through the way God intended because he alone is the only one that is just and holy. So when God handed down the punishment, it was not out of revenge. It was because of divine justice and love that demands a proper response. But what is left out of this whole argument is that while humans had rebelled, God was not like a frustrated adult picking up the pieces after Satan. He wasn't going to start all new, and he wasn't going to leave us to fend for ourselves. God set a plan in motion to restore his creation. He tells Eve that from her seed, the seed will come a son who would crush the head of the serpent, and that the serpent would strike his heel. That prophecy would later happen through Mary, who would give birth to Jesus, the Son of God, who would become the ultimate sacrifice so that we can be set free from sin. So based on the full-out information, does the argument we talk about today paint God as cruel and unjust? If you just went on the information the humanists provide, then yes. But when you look at the actual context of Genesis and who God really is, then the answer is no. God is not cruel and unjust. He is actually a loving God and just. So that is it it for this week's episode. Next week, we will have a special Halloween episode because of Tuesday being Halloween. And my interactive question for you on Spotify and Facebook this week is, should Christians be involved in Halloween? Due to the nature of the question, I ask that everyone be respectful of others' answers, especially on Facebook. This question allows me to see what others are thinking and how I want to take this episode. Other than that, if you are liking this channel, please like slash rate, depending on the platform you're using, and subscribe. Also, share this podcast with everyone so our channel can grow in the future. I hope to provide additional content and behind-the-scenes action as this channel continues to grow. So have a great week, everyone. God bless. Thank you.